It's about 250 years ago that a scattered uh, group of uh, uh, intellectuals began to dream a dream. They dreamed that pure reason, without reference to God, would one day rule every aspect of our understanding of the world. Actually, they knew about image and brand before an advertising executive had even walked the earth. So they uh, knew that their dream needed a bright, exciting image, a good name. They called it the Enlightenment. And they knew it needed a story as well. Immanuel Kant was the first to uh, write that story in a famous essay entitled What is Enlightenment? He confidently told us that what he was talking about was growing up. Enlightenment, he said, is man's leaving his self-caused immaturity. In order to bolster that story, they invented a name for the previous era, the era that had come before them. They called it the Dark Ages, despite the fact that uh, it was an era which saw progress in almost every area of human endeavour. And they invented a future hope, a new one, a religionless world of peace and prosperity governed solely by reason. And the brand and the story took hold, in Britain in particular, and in the 19th century bore the most wonderful fruit in science and industry and political reform. By the end of the the century, many people even thought world peace was in sight. But people just didn't realise that these good things actually depended on the fact that Christianity was still strong in Britain and Europe. In the 20th century, the Enlightenment project, as it had come to be called, um, drove forward and triumphed. Christianity began to fade dramatically. Now, the Enlightenment philosophy of free market capitalism ruled large parts of the globe and uh, Enlightenment's other daughter, communism, ruled more or less all of the rest. But then disaster struck. Wars broke out and killed unimaginable numbers of people. Communism brought darkness and poverty and ultimately was wiped away by popular uprising. Capitalism continued to shower its subjects with bright, shiny things, but there was an increasing unease about it, an increasing sense of darkness within. Unfettered capitalism, people began to see, tended to plunder the many to make the few rich. It damaged the environment and caused global warming. It seemed unable, actually, at the depths of people's hearts to make them happy. And in a few short decades, in the second half of the 20th century, the Enlightenment changed in people's minds from being the unquestioned bringer of all good things to at best a mixed blessing and at worst a con. Slowly people began to wake up to the fact 
that the great fathers of the movement had actually been masters of spin and they had brought forth monsters. But where could people turn? Now, by and large, they still believed that the old God of Christianity was a discredited and distant memory. Uh, Frankly, people were rather lost. So they began to explore a thousand spiritualities, to divert themselves with innumerable trifles, to toy with a million ideas, but they just could not find a coherent hope, a clear set of beliefs, something that would really satisfy them. Indeed, many lost any confidence that there was any larger hope at all. And so we reach today. From time to time, human society gets to a moment such as we have reached today. From time to time, society loses confidence in its false hopes and feels lost, rudderless, unable to decide which way to go. Actually, the beginning of the book of Exodus was another moment like that. See, for the Israelites in, uh, 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 at the beginning of Exodus, um, they had a long and difficult history. Hundreds of years before, they had marched down into Egypt full of hope and confidence. They had uh, prospered there, they had multiplied, but over those hundreds of years things had started to go sour. They had drifted into slavery and most particularly they had lost their faith. They had lost their sense that God was there. Last week we uh, asked the question, what, what was really going to change those things? It is a very pertinent question because it is a similar moment to the moment we are in as a society. What is going to change things? And we saw the, the first answer in chapters 1 and 2. Human beings are not going to be able to do it. They may uh, tinker around the edges and do some small and minor good things but they are useless to affect any significant, substantial change. Last week we we glanced forward at this chapter. We said then, God is going to have to step in. God himself. This week we're going to see how he does it. The first thing in uh, this chapter that we need to uh, uh, see is that God begins this great work that he is going to do by giving a sign 
which arouses curiosity. By the time we meet Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he himself has abandoned any faith that he might have had, probably decades before, frankly. His failed coup that we looked at last, last week had left him disillusioned and he t- decided to use his ample gifts to get a girl and make a living. But God was not going to give up on him. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And this may be a sign just to catch Moses' attention but I suspect there is actually a little bit more to it than that. God often in the Bible appears in fire or is associated with fire. Fire is bright, dangerous. It burns and it destroys. And in many ways it seems to capture something of God. God is described at least a dozen times in in the Bible as a consuming fire. When his holiness and perfection meets human sin and depravity, it is like a spark meeting meeting, uh, tinder and we know what will happen. But this flame here does not consume. This is surely an indication of of that other side of God's character. The holy God comes and should destroy, but he doesn't. It was exactly the same when Jesus finally came. There is a sense of dangerous holiness about Jesus. Uh, Again and again the, the Gospels describe how people were afraid when they started to see who he was and what he was doing. But actually when he touched those people, They were not destroyed, they were healed. They were not condemned, they were forgiven. Maybe even today, God works in the same way, with a similar sign. Maybe today, he is giving a sign to a world that has forgotten God, like Moses, in his church. You know, there is fire that warns people, without holiness no one will see the Lord. But I've been struck in the last year by the number of times that I read reports in the newspapers of how people who, um, reporters who had imagined that evangelicals were fire-breathing bigots, went along and saw a community of real Christians and found the opposite. People were not destroyed. They were made whole. Maybe uh, one of the first things that our society will do is it will see this curiosity 
and it will say, I will go over and see this strange sight. But in order to really change things, God needs to do more than just uh, display some enigmatic curiosity in the desert. He needs, with a voice, to reveal his character. God speaks to Moses, first of all. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Now, this is, this is scary. And, uh, 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 and, and let's be clear, today it rarely happens in that sort of audible way. Especially since today we have God's word written. That is his normal way of speaking to us today, through our reading of the Bible. But those who are going to be changed by God never, ever are changed in any other way except that they sense and they know the living God has spoken to them. And here is what he says. First of all, he says, He is holy. Verse 5. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Don't saunter up to me like a tourist approaching an ice cream van, Moses. Stop! He says, Don't come to me as if this was just a casual meeting in the park, Moses. You are entering my presence. Take off your sandals, Moses. Bow your head and tremble, for I am the holy God. Perhaps you'd forgotten God is holy. It's easy to happen when we rightly emphasise God's, uh, God's grace here. The book of Revelation at the end affirms what the Bible says at the beginning. It says that Jesus himself has eyes like burning fire. He looks straight into our hearts. And if he sees casual indifference, now that fire is still able to consume. He is a holy God. Perhaps God is actually saying to you, stop. Perhaps you have wandered into church, maybe for the first time, maybe, maybe actually you wandered in years ago and since then it's just become a habit. But maybe you have never really grasped that he is holy. Stop, Moses. Take off your shoes, Moses. You are on holy ground. Secondly, God reveals that he is faithful. Verse 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses and his people may have forgotten God. Our, our country, Europe, may have forgotten God. But God has not changed or gone away. He is the God who made promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He is the God who remains faithful for generation after generation, century after century, millennium after millennium. 
You thought I'd long gone, didn't you Moses? As you got on with your life. But I am here. And I have not forgotten the promises I made. Three and a half thousand years have elapsed since Moses and they only serve to reinforce this faithfulness of God that he speaks about here. By the first century AD, many, many of God's people thought that God had had failed them. There was no prophet, no saviour. And then along came Jesus. And by that one man's ministry, the people of God was transformed into a multicultural, spirit-filled church which took the whole world by storm. And since then, down through the centuries, there have been different times in different cultures when people have said with, with confidence, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Jesus is dead. And their arrogant chatter has always been silenced. Do you know Christianity once had a strong foothold in China? They wiped it out. But now it is growing again. Christianity once thrived in Africa. It produced... It produced some of the world's greatest Christian theologians and then it all but uh, disappeared. But now it is growing again. Christianity once thrived in Europe and it has been in decline. But now true Christianity is growing again. Because God does not forget his promises. Sometimes, as here, he returns after hundreds of years. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I will not forget my promises. And that may mean something personally for you. Jesus pointed out, actually, that uh, uh, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Not actually, I was their God. As as if still, he is is before them and they are worshipping him. They live beyond death. Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. His faithfulness lasts even beyond death. Even death will not stop him. If we belong to him, he will forever be my God whom I worship now. No wonder Moses hides his face. Perhaps deeply ashamed that he should so easily turn his back on a God of such faithfulness.
But you see, Moses need not fear because this God too is compassionate. Verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. He sees their misery. He hears their crying and he is concerned. God is driven by compassion. God really gets working in individuals and in whole societies when their misery makes them cry out to him and all his compassion is aroused. He has compassion on the people he has made. Perhaps you are here this morning with your heart crying out to God. He loves to reveal himself to such people. He is filled with compassion for you. God loves to bless churches too which demonstrate that compassion to his world. He loves to bless Christians who are compassionate in their workplace, who are compassionate within their family, who are compassionate within their friendships because they are emulating him. Make no mistake about it, it is physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually costly to do that. Anyone who has engaged with this world will know there have been tears. And great cost. But then you see it cost God the life of his son, didn't it? God so loved the world that he was prepared to send his son. Which brings us to the next thing God reveals about himself. He is prepared to come down Verse 8, So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. I have come down. There are a number of times in the Old Testament when God speaks in that way and, and you could at first just read it as a, as a dramatic metaphor. I am going to come and sort this situation out. I am going to be actively present. But then along comes Jesus. And suddenly we see that that language, far from being a, a simple metaphor, anticipated something far more profound. God himself in Christ was going to visit the world and do his greatest work as a man who had come down. And that great work was not going to be deliverance just from the Egyptians. No, this was going to be deliverance from punishment for our, from our, for our sins because he took the punishment for our sins on himself, on the cross. That deliverance wasn't just going to be into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. It was going to be deliverance into a new creation beyond death because Jesus rose from the dead first and he promised that every single one of his children would rise from the dead and populate a renewed creation. 
God was prepared to come down. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, says the Apostle Paul. God was prepared to be one of us, to deliver us, with all the massive cost that that entailed. And finally, after God has told Moses about himself, after that voice has revealed his character to Moses, finally we see a name that completes the picture. Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are set to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. There's been so much ink spilt on trying to understand the significance of this passage. First of all, we must note that God is giving himself a proper name. The NIV always translates this uh, uh, name in verse 15 as the Lord with capital letters for, for, for Lord. But that implies that it's, that, that it's a title. Now this is a personal name he is revealing to Moses. As personal as Peter is my name. God is a person to be known. Not a vague concept, not a numinal force. He has a name. A name which modern people often pronounce as Yahweh, our best effort at what it might have been. But this name does have a significance. It's related to the verb to be. Hence in verse 14, uh, um, uh, Moses is told, say, I am has sent you. I, I think the best way to understand this name and its significance is to say that it it sums up every other quality which God has been speaking to, uh, uh, speaking about up to now and it, and it roots this, these qualities in God's own eternal, uncreated, unchangeable existence. He just is. He is not derived from anything or anyone. He is not going to change. He just is. He is holy because he is utterly perfect. He is the source of all perfection. He defines perfection. Everything else which in this world is, is just a pale, damaged reflection of the, the utterly perfect I am. He is faithful, as he said he is, um, uh, because he is eternally the same, eternally in control, eternally uh, enthroned beyond creation. He is the source and sustainer of creation. It is a matter of, uh, of, 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 of nothing for him to control 
the whole of history, the whole universe. You thought my promises had failed, Moses, he says. You thought somehow I'd wandered away into the ether of, of irrelevance. Moses, you need to know, I am. And I will never cease to be. He is the source of all compassion. He will work out the whole of history according to his unchanging, unfailing love. I am who I am, he says, or better, I am being whom I am being, Moses. And, and what I am is someone who sees misery, is someone who, who, who hears cries, who is concerned. I am who I am, Moses. And that will never change. Imagine the amazement in the hearts of those who heard Jesus when in John chapter 8, 58 he said of himself before Abraham was I am Somehow that self-existent God, that God who was utterly in control, utterly unchanging, utterly eternal, uh, derived uh, uh, um, from nothing, had become a man in Jesus Christ. To finally work out those purposes that he revealed to Moses. We live at a moment, at a moment that it seems to me there is lots of evidence to suggest God may be willing to break in again in new power. I say that because I see the pain. I hear just a tiny little percentage of those cries that God hears. I see just a tiny little bit of the misery that God sees. And I know he has not changed. And I know the way he's going to break in. Because I know the way he broke in here. Here he revealed himself to one man. And then to a nation, the Israelites. And then to the world, Egypt. And if he is going to make a real difference, that's what he will do. Maybe he's even doing it in your life now. Oh, but I couldn't be used by God. 
I'm lacking in gifts. I've made a mess of my life. Next week we're going to explore that in more length. But this week, just remember Moses who had made the biggest mess ever and walked out on God. And yet in verse 10 we find God saying, So now, Moses, you, the failure, who's forgotten me, who is miles from where you should be, so now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Those Enlightenment spin masters, they told us a lie. They told us a lie that this world is starting to see. But there is a true story here. A story that makes sense of this world. A story that we can be part of. We know the living God. He will use our lives for his glory. Let's pray.